0: another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Reel. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site mormondiscussion.podbean.com That's mormondiscussion, all one word, p dot .com You can also find us on Facebook, under under the name Mormon Discussion. All one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Today I want to talk to you about the subject of unrighteous dominion. I found four articles online that are outside of the standard things we use in the church. I believe these are all from LDS members either through blogs or articles or papers that they've written. But I want to share some thoughts on unrighteous dominion that'll help us maybe see this in a bigger light. I think the the quick the way that we approach this issue, issue is that we will look at husbands who rule over their wives and children in such a way as to be ruthless, as to take away agency. And while I, I want to absolutely recognize that type of unrighteous dominion in what we're talking about, I also want to speak to lots of other ways in which members and leaders can exercise unrighteous dominion. I want to start with an article called Courage, Revelation, Revelation. And unrighteous dominion. This is an article that uh, that was on the blog uh, by common consent. It starts off saying, "Unrighteous dominion is a topic frequently invoked when priesthood leaders are accused of doing things that we might not like." I-, I like that. That almost can be seen almost in a humorous way, right? That anything we don't like that a priesthood leader does, that's unrighteous dominion. But in reality, not everything that we don't like. That a leader is confronting us with is unrighteous dominion. But sometimes we see it that way. We, we feel like because we're being, we're being confronted with someone else's truth that is different than ours, we automatically want to go to the unrighteous dominion accusation. But we ought to be careful of that. The paper continues. It talks about D&C 121, which warns against attempting to exercise control, dominion, or compulsion upon the souls of men in any degree of unrighteousness. That's verse 37 in section 121. And we recognize that uh, this calls leaders to use persuasion and long-suffering in order to have an everlasting dominion which avoids compulsion. You see, the distinction between unrighteous and righteous dominion, which these verses establish, is one of method. It is whether one is using gentle persuasion or one is using compulsion. Now, to be honest, I use compulsion on my children every day, and it's something I'm confronted with on a daily basis that I need to find ways to allow them room to use their agency. There's a couple quotes here I want to read. It says, One potential form of unrighteous dominion is associated with the channels of revelation in the cultural expectation concerning the limits of priesthood authority. Unrighteous dominion can persist in part because of inaccurate or unhealthy expectations that are placed upon certain groups of leaders to which they, the leaders, might feel obligated to respond or to live up to. It can be difficult trying to serve someone who has a very different revelatory paradigm from you. In addition, our current ecclesiastical structure, there is potential for leaders to inappropriately extend the province of their appointed revelatory sphere. Evidently, the lack of clear boundaries for that sphere is problematic. For example... A member of the stake presidency who tells a suspicious spouse that God has revealed to them their partner is faithful is exercising unrighteous dominion. Few leaders go to such extremes. And yet, if it is the nature and disposition of almost all men, or should say all people, to exercise unrighteous dominion, then there must be other ways in which this is manifest. Unquote. And so you can see here, I think this is a a crucial little paragraph. You know, the unrighteous dominion can persist in part because of inaccurate or unhealthy expectations that are placed upon certain groups of leaders to which they, the leaders, might feel obligated to respond or to live up to. There is this feeling, having served as a bishop, I can certainly say there is this feeling sometimes to, there's this pressure to overstate the case. So I'll give an example. When extending callings in the ward, There are times that it was absolutely obvious that Heavenly Father was having a say in the calling. There were other times where that feeling was absent. And you kind of go on your best guess at that point, right? You don't have a revelation. To extend a calling, but you talk about the people who need a responsibility, the calling and what it entails, what their situation is with their life and their family. Will this be a blessing to them? So you consider all of the factors that go into it and you say, you know what, Sister Jones is the best person for this calling at this time. It will be a blessing to her and it will be a blessing to our ward. Heavenly Father, is there a problem with that? Because you haven't given me a direct answer on if you're okay with it. Is there a problem with that? Don't get a feeling that there's a problem. So you proceed with the calling. But when you extend the calling to Mrs. Jones, there is this pressure to still say, you know, you have been called by our Father in Heaven to calling such and such. We've received a revelation that you've been called to that position. And it becomes very tricky in that there are times where that revelation is not there or it's very unclear and you're just doing the best you can, which I think Heavenly Father is okay with at times. Don't I don't want some listeners to balk at this and say, How dare you not get a revelation on a calling? I just don't think it works that way every time. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But I think after reading this article, we're we're maybe a little more obligated to to be considerate of whether it came by revelation or not, and to to choose our words wisely as we extend the call so that we don't put the impression on the person across the table that this calling came as a revelation from God, when in reality it did not. So that's one way that we can we can exercise unrighteous dominion. The next paragraph says, "I suspect that this problem of receiving revelation on behalf of others is a major area in which unrighteous dominion occurs, but it is a, it is actualized in a variety of other, perhaps more subtle practices. It is possible that fallaciously representing an expressed viewpoint or decision as the will of God is a form of unrighteous dominion, which we just talked about. What if this misrepresentation was unintended?" Extending callings is a difficult business in light of these questions. In addition, if a Relief Society president has a revelation that a particular person should be called, I think the bishop should be very careful in contradicting her, especially because he can, in effect, veto any suggestion. Moreover, if he does believe that the calling should not go ahead and he asserts his revelation over hers... Is this a form of unrighteous dominion? In addition, what if the bishop makes a decision regarding a calling that he feels good about, but cannot claim that it is a revelation, nor can he claim that it is the right thing for the person at this time? Is it unrighteous dominion to suggest it is more than a good feeling, based on his best understanding? What if the person is less likely to accept the position if it is not framed within the usual, God wants you to serve as, discursive repertoire? Would it be unrighteous dominion to use that discourse inaccurately? Unquote. Now these questions are intended to to sensitize us to the revelatory process in order that we might approach these issues with greater care. This is also from the article. It seems that being a leader who exercises righteous dominion takes a degree of courage, a courage that can accept revelation which contradicts his own sense of what is right, a courage that can tolerate the rejection of her own best advice, a courage to consistently refuse to offer judgment, to those who should be more carefully judging themselves, and a courage to refuse to promise blessings to those who should be turning to the Lord. To me, that's just beautiful. And then the article returns to this. As to return to D&C 121, the person who wrote the article says, In my mind, one of the key words in this passage is begin. Almost all men will immediately begin to exercise in righteous dominion, and yet there is no specification upon how many will continue to do so, therefore, becoming a leader of any kind is like leaving the garden—an inevitable fall into sin from which we must repent and turn again to righteous forms of dominion, which multiply, replenish, and cause to be fruitful. I believe we are therefore called to accept the challenge to courageously exercise righteous dominion. And I thought that was a great article. And, and I think the idea of us just being more mindful. Of the way in which we do things in the church that we simply are trying to meet an expectation or a pressure we feel upon us to frame things a certain way and to maybe be more bold and courageous to not do that when it's inappropriate, when it's, uh, and to be honest, when it's dishonest. And so I hope that that, that article kind of sets the tone. Now, the second article that I have here is an article on the blog modernmormonmen.com. So the first one was from ByCommonConsent.com. This one is by, uh, uh this is ModernMormonMen.com. And the title of this one is Institutional Unrighteous Dominion. And in this article, the uh, the writer sets up their thoughts with this story. They say, picture the scene. I've been a member of the church for less than a year. And my wife and I had just moved to the UK to settle down as a young married couple. After a few weeks of attending our new ward, I'm ushered into an office to meet with a member of the Stake High Council who has been assigned to extend my first proper calling. After dispensing with the niceties, he said that before extending the calling, he needed to assess my worthiness for it. I already sat through a few of those interviews before baptism and receiving my priesthood offices, but this one turned out differently. This is how a portion of the interview went. To the best of my recollection, and parts of the conversation are redacted, To give, to get around internet filters. And so before I share this conversation that he has with this member of the state high council, I'm just gonna use the word, I'm just gonna make a beeping noise when he essentially leaves out a segment. It's not that there's something there that's inappropriate, although there is, but the person who wrote the article also took it out. Uh, So with that, the state high councilman asked, do you keep the law of chastity? Yes. Well, since you are new to the church and recently married, I think we better review that a bit more. Uh oh. The High Councilman continues, A lot of people think it's okay to beep with beep. Sometimes you might want to wear beep while whipping your wife's beep. My wife has never liked performing beep on my beep, and I agree that it isn't pleasant. You might be tempted to stick your beep into beep, but it isn't how God intended it to happen. Sometimes beep, 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 beep beep with a beep. So, with that, do you still keep the law of chastity? Now the person who wrote the article replies, he says, if it wasn't a fast Sunday, I'd have brought up my breakfast all over his loafers. I quickly replied in the affirmative, even though my wife and I have beep on a number of occasions, and the rest of the interview passed without incident. I left called as the new assistant ward clerk. So I, I get it, that that um that correspondence between the Stake High Councilman, this interview between the State High Councilman and this member of the church. Totally inappropriate. And, and to be honest, I'm very uncomfortable even reading that. But I think it makes a point, which is there are too many, and I'm not saying it's a majority or a large chunk, but even, even a small number of leaders percentage-wise, it's too many to just, to just let it slide. This is a serious, serious problem. In that, there are members of the church who end up in leadership offices who use unrighteous dominion in the way in which they conduct interviews, um, impose questions, impose standards, teach supposed doctrine, offer counsel. And and no, I don't think it is a a large percentage of leaders in the church that act this way. I think think 99% of leaders in the church are humble and are trying to do the best they can uh, under the circumstance. But it only takes that 1% to to be acting so far out of line. And the issue is that when these when these brethren or sisters even are interacting, most of the time it's with youth, it's with sisters in the church. And there can be this this uh using the weight of a calling or the firmness of being a a man, for instance, that can in the end keep the youth from speaking up, keep the sisters from speaking up in speaking out against this type of behavior, so he shares that story. He, uh, in this article from Modern Mormon Men, he goes on and says a few things. He says the Savior didn't go about saying, "Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden," but before you do, this is what I want you to wear. And he, and he, and then he goes on. He talks about. He says, um, "We've all heard stories about people being told what constitutes appropriate Sunday dress." When I was first called as a bishop, I had a running battle with a priesthood leader who insisted ironic priesthood administer the sacrament needed. Sorry. I had a running battle with a priesthood leader who insisted the Aaronic priesthood that administered the sacrament needed to wear suit jackets. When I said it was unnecessary and wasn't in the handbook, he insisted that while that was the case, we would be better, we would be a better ward if we better enforced dress codes. I explained that our responsibility as ward leaders was to bring souls unto Christ. And I'm pretty sure the Savior didn't go about saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, but before you do, this is what I want you to wear. He says, last year, the FMH, which is the group that takes care of the buildings, started an action to try and work out what the church policy was regarding menstruating women performing baptisms in the temple. Some temples forbade it, others said it was fine. It turned out there wasn't a policy, and women were free to participate in baptisms whenever they wanted. However, at worst, this was an example of culture imposing a rule on someone unnecessarily when when it needn't have been. He says, Do people who are looking for the truths of the restored gospel find those truths reflected in the lives of the members of the church? Or do they see a number of scribes and Pharisees more intent in keeping the church their own club with their own petty rules, rather than welcoming those who have different cultural expectations and opinions? And I have seen this numerous times. I have seen leaders tell me, in spite of the handbook not saying so, that they wanted brethren to give opening prayers and sisters to only give closing prayers, that they wanted a Melchizedek priesthood holder to always be the concluding speaker, that even when a fireside that was also a missionary activity served an incredible purpose and went off fantastically, that the first thing a, a leader higher up could say was that the person putting on the presentation wasn't wearing a white shirt. It, it is that type of... of Putting the rules way beyond where they were meant to be and overstating the case. And it is these black and white thinking leaders who, who need lines drawn everywhere and seem very unwilling to give flexibility when it is, when it is best to do so. He shares some suggestions. I only want to share a couple of these. He says, if the rule doesn't exist in the handbook, don't make one up. The church is supposed to be flexible for a reason. The lack of knowledge of the handbook is one major reason for the imposition of oppressive, of oppressive rules on a local level. The church tried to alleviate this with the latest edition in 2010 by making it available online. Every, and so this is me, this is me speaking now. Every member should be familiar with the handbook. We talk about people should wear their Sunday best. Let people decide for themselves what the Sunday best is. That's one of his suggestions. And while I will, I will add this, I will say that when one is officiating in the priesthood, I think it shows our dedication if we wear our best. And by best, I interpret that to mean a white shirt. So if I'm gonna go give someone a blessing, if I'm gonna to go to my church meetings, I generally will do my best to make sure I have a white shirt on for that. That said, once a month or twice a month, I go to church with a colored shirt. I'll put on my purple shirt, my purple tie, and uh, and I'm excited to do that. I don't see, I don't see Heavenly Father ever having come down and said, okay, my church, it is my mind and will that the uniform of the priesthood be a white shirt and tie and a suit jacket. I just don't think that's the case. So I'm going to agree with this this gentleman in the article when he says, let people decide for themselves what the Sunday best is. But I will also preface that with, with the idea that you know what your Sunday best is, and especially when you're going to officiate in ordinances, or you're going to participate in... In blessings or other things that that perhaps we can just make ourselves that much more make these things that much more important to us in those moments. So that would be the only thing I'd add to that. He uh, he finishes off by saying the gospel is for the entire human family. Am I allowing more of them to participate in the joys found therein, or am I crafting a club which restricts some people from feeling comfortable in it? That's one of his concluding thoughts, and I think it hits the the nail on the head that the church's responsibility is to bring all unto Christ. And if the way in which we operate is diminishing that purpose, then perhaps we ought to to consider doing something different and being more open. And we ought to at least look at the handbook and say, is this something I have to do? And if if it's diminishing the purpose of bringing all unto Christ, and it's a rule that you've created or someone else has created that's not found in the handbook, then I'd say get rid of it. That'd be my two cents. I want to finish with the last uh, two articles here. They're just, uh, and and these may go a little long. I, I hope not to be too long with these. The first one is called Insights on Church Leadership. It is an article written by Marcus H. Martins, Brigham Young University. It was written, it looks like, in 1993, but there's been a 1991 and 2001 editions as well. And he talks about unrighteous dominion, and this is what he has to say. He covers various topics. He talks about ways in which we practice unrighteous dominion. He talks about covering sins. He talks about gratifying one's pride in vain ambitions. And so anytime we're covering our personal sins up so that people don't find out about them, generally we're probably using uh, unrighteous dominion. If we're gratifying our pride or our vain ambitions, we are using unrighteous dominion. And I do that at times. I go into classes sometimes, and I'm so so hell-bent on showing people that there's way more flexibility in the gospel. And so when some teacher gets up and starts teaching some principle that I just completely disagree with, I, I tend to want to just raise my hand and put things in their proper place. But my motives behind that are not always completely pure. Sometimes I just want to show them that, hey, guys, you're missing the boat. And my first concern is not necessarily to make sure the spirit stays in the lesson or to make sure that the teacher is not offended. I, I, I can sometimes just be a pain in the butt. And so I recognize that. And I'm saying that when I gratify my pride or my vain ambition, that that is unrighteous dominion. He then goes into a section which says a misconception about inspiration. And this is what he says. He says another common way by which unrighteous dominion develops is through a misconception about inspiration. He says we listen most often in testimony meetings that church leaders are inspired. I also testify that particularly when I think about the inspiring experiences I have had over the years with many of our general authorities, but... As for myself as a local leader, I would rather testify that I have the right to receive inspiration. If we concentrate on the idea that we are always inspired, we may fall into the trap of thinking that every thought in our minds is a revelation from the Lord. Those who yield to this idea will generally tend to no longer be open to counseling, and their behavior sometimes can be defined by the cliché, don't confuse me with the facts, I've already made up my mind. Right, And then he closes that section he says, I have seen persons who seem to believe in the idea that they have been called because they had in their minds the solutions for all problems. Almost like saying they could save the world. To this idea I respond with this sentence. This eternity isn't big enough for more than one Messiah. Which is great. So he hits on this idea too that that we sometimes give the impression in the way we use words in testimony meeting, the way we teach lessons and teach principles, that that we are we as a leader or our bishop or our state president that those individuals are always led by inspiration. And even in the case of prophets and apostles, they are not always led by inspiration. And we've covered that in recent weeks when we talk about the race issue and the new uh, topics being covered on LDS.org and, and Elder McConkie's comments in regards to that. The next section that he goes into is one that says repressing free agency. He says there is another way by which one can exercise unrighteous dominion, and that is by trying to impede others of exercising their free agency. This is a very serious transgression in one of the reasons why Lucifer, a brilliant spirit in the premortal world, was expelled from heaven. He concludes this section, he concludes this section by saying this he says how oft and this was a quote, he's actually quoting um The words of Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. This one's from Brother Joseph. How oft have wise men and women sought to dictate... No, I'm sorry. Let me back this up. This is Brigham Young speaking about Joseph Smith. He says, how oft have wise men and women sought to dictate Brother Joseph by saying, Oh, if I were Brother Joseph, I would do this and that. But if they were in Brother Joseph's shoes, they would find that men or women could not be compelled into the kingdom of God but must be dealt with in long-suffering, and at last we shall save them. The way to keep all the saints together and keep the work rolling is to wait with all long-suffering till God shall bring such characters to justice. There should be no license for sin, but mercy should go hand in hand with reproof. He then says, Gather the saints, but do not flatter. Invite, but do not urge and by no means compel anyone. He then goes into avoiding unrighteous dominion. He says there is no need to be ashamed of giving the Lord credit for the mighty works or the small ones we perform. We should not only mention that, but also really feel the reality of that. Then we would use prayers of thanksgiving. Remember how the Lord prayed to the Father among the Nephites and the Lamanites, even while those individuals were praying directly to Jesus? The scripture says, And behold, they began to pray, and they did pray unto Jesus, calling him their Lord and their God. And it came to pass that Jesus departed out of their midst, out of the midst of them, and bowed himself to the earth and said, Father, they pray unto me because I am with them. And now, Father, I pray unto thee for them, and also for all those who shall believe on their words. So the next time somebody says, congratulations for your class, or your talk or whatever else it is that you just did in the church, and they let you know that they appreciated it very much, you could say, Thank you for your kindness, but I have to recognize the hand of the Lord in what I did. It is always a great delight to feel the Spirit of the Lord when we talk about the Gospel. So I think that's a good one. If we can always be prone to give credit to Heavenly Father. Now, a word about coping with someone else's unrighteous dominion. This is his last uh, little section that he goes into. He says, some may say the Lord would never allow someone to exercise unrighteous dominion in the true church. However, President Brigham Young suggests the Lord may allow it so that we can learn wisdom. Brother Kimball, this is Brother Young quoting, Brother Kimball said today when he was speaking, if you suffer yourselves to find fault with your bishop, you condescend to the spirit of apostasy. Do any of you do this? If you do, you do not realize that you expose yourself to the power of the enemy. What should your faith and position be before God? "'Such that, if a bishop does not do right, the Lord will remove him out of your ward. "'You are not to find fault. "'As Brother Wells has said, "'Speak not lightly of the anointed of the Lord. "'Yet many rise up and condemn their bishop. "'Perhaps that bishop has been appointed expressly to try those persons "'and to cause them to apostatize. "'A great many will not apostatize until they arrive here. "'And who knows but what the Lord has prompted a bishop to do, "'and so and so to cause somebody to apostatize.'" One of the first steps to apostasy is to find fault with your bishop. And when that is done, unless repented of, a second step is soon taken. And by and by, the person is cut off from the church, and that is the end of it. So he's not excusing away the bad behavior. He's not saying it's okay. He's simply saying that at times, there's, we ought to see that there are these things that happen within the church, and that maybe they're, they're serving a greater purpose than we recognize. And that we ought to be careful of any time that we speak evil of the Lord's anointed. And I and I think that's important. I'm not I'm not saying that we let these things happen, but I am saying that uh that we need to to be careful of how we handle these kinds of situations. If something serious has happened, don't be afraid to go talk to somebody. Don't be afraid to go to a leader higher up. But to gossip and complain about, oh, I wish the bishop wouldn't have done that or he should never done this or I wouldn't have done it that way. Or I can't believe he, you know, imposed this restrict. You know, talk to him about it first, one-on-one, behind closed doors. If, you, if that doesn't resolve it, then, then go to a higher-up authority. Go to the state president and see if that resolves it. If that doesn't resolve it, go to someone higher up and see if that resolves it. But But don't make it a point to then ruin the influence that he has by... By behind his back speaking negative of him in front of other members of the ward, that that doesn't that that will almost never do any good. The the last one I wanted to hit on is is a chapter seven from a book, and I don't know if I can even let me see here. So I'm trying to find it here. The the book that this comes from is called "Power and Covenants: Men, Women, and Priesthood." It was a book written in 1996 dealing with the marriage covenant between men and women. And uh, it was written by R. Scott Strong and David B. Goat. It's got multiple chapters in it. It looks like about 20 chapters. But of those, of those 20 chapters, I picked out here chapter 7, Righteous and Unrighteous Dominion. And so some of the quotes from here, he says, Leaders are movers and shakers, original, inventive, unpredictable, imaginative, full of surprises that discomfit the enemy in war, in the main office, in peace. For managers are safe, conservative, predictable, conforming, organization men and team players dedicated to the establishment. He's, he's making a dichotomy here. And he's playing off of Hugh Nibley's, uh, this is Hugh Nibley's talk, Leaders and Managers. And Hugh is the one who quotes this. He says, leaders are movers and shakers. They're original, inventive, unpredictable, imaginative, full of surprises that discomfit the enemy in war, in the main office in peace. I think that's very true. In, in times of, of heightened need, a leader is who everybody looks to, but when everything is kosher and on a plateau, nobody wants the leader around because his ideas are too uh, revolting uh, to the average person. And so many people who at least maybe think the same way I do see these tough issues, who are contemplating deeper principles, while while at times people will gravitate to these ideas that you and I share and think about and talk about, there are also times we make people very dis, uh, very uncomfortable, and, uh, and so we ought to understand that. And then to contradict that, the other side of the dichotomy is managers. And, and, and Brother Nibley says, for managers are safe, they're conservative, they're predictable, they're conforming organization men and team players dedicated to the establishment. And so these men essentially keep the status quo going. And from my perspective... I'm okay with that. You know, there are big chunks of the status quo which are beautiful and right and true, but there are also big chunks of the status quo that are inappropriate, which are outdated, which are not based on truth, and which need to go. And so we need to find some kind of balance between being a leader and a manager. In this article, it says, quoting the Savior, it says, If you love me, said the greatest of all leaders, you will keep my commandments. If you know what is good for me, says the manager, you will keep my commandments and not make waves. And that that can be uh, can be very true at times. There are people who interact with us within church authority who simply interact out of their need to be right and their need to push in, an agenda or to be accepted by those higher up. So you may see a bishop or a stake president who simply does something a certain way because they want to have the approval of those higher up beyond them. And, and so we want to be careful of that. We all want to be aware that at the end of the day. What draws us closer to Christ and what is right in His eyes is the right thing to do, sometimes regardless of what anybody else says, and sometimes the right thing to do is to let the right thing to do go and to conform. But there has to be a balance, and every one of us have got to kind of find that way. It says, To take the oversight thereof does not mean to despotically lord over, but rather to lovingly watch over and to serve. In other words, there are going to be leaders in the church Every flock needs a shepherd at its head. There needs to be bishops. There needs to be stake presidents. There needs to be a high priest group leader and an elders quorum president and a relief society president and a primary president. We need leaders. And those leaders are going to have to make decisions at times that that push the group to perhaps do things that either members of the group or maybe even the majority of the group do not want to do. But that's what leaders are there for and someone has to lead. And to understand that oversight does not mean to lord over, but to rather, rather lovingly watch over and to serve. It says in Babylon, the people serve the king. In Zion, the king serves the people. He then talks about, uh, a, he says this, he says a righteous leader will never constrain, coerce, or manipulate those for whom he has stewardship but will always work and sacrifice to serve and bless, to persuade and guide, to feed and protect with kindness and love those for whom he has oversight. Watching out for their welfare will be his mission. Contrast the stake high counselor who stands at the pulpit, angrily shaking his fist at the collective body of the priesthood in the stake with a rock-solid 70% home teaching effort and shouts, those of you who don't do your home teaching will never inherit the celestial kingdom. Contrast that with the humble bishop who is constantly setting an example by ministering quietly with his counselors among his people in their homes as the Spirit directs him. I know in my own personal experience, we had a stake conference one time where one of the members of the stake gave a talk on family home evening. And they made the comment in this talk that in their family home evening, they don't always have religious lessons. that Sometimes they'll just go outside and play Frisbee. As a family, and that'll be their family home evening. And after that, a member of the temple presidency stood up and he gave a talk. And he starts off his talk by correcting this sister who just gave a talk on family home evening. And he tells her, sister, I just want to correct you. Any family home evening that doesn't have a doctrinal principle being taught and start and end with a prayer is not an appropriate family home evening. And when he said that, I'm like, oh my goodness, he did not just do that. Well... Right after his talk, he was corrected by a member of the stake presidency who then took the stand and said that essentially this brother had misspoken, that the handbook is clear, that the church is not to determine what a family home evening is for a family, but that the family has the flexibility and responsibility to go by the Holy Spirit and decide what an appropriate family home evening is. And I thought that was wonderful. All too often, our need to be right trumps the need to have truth. And Elder Uchtdorf hits on this when he says this. President Uchtdorf says this. He says, part of the reason for poor judgment comes from the tendency of mankind to blur the line between belief and truth. We too often confuse belief with truth, thinking that because something makes sense or it is convenient, it must be true. Conversely, we sometimes don't believe truth or reject it because it would require us to change or admit that we were wrong. Often truth is rejected because it doesn't appear to be consistent with previous experiences. When opinions or truths of others contradict our own, instead of considering the possibility that there could be information that might be helpful and augment or complement what we know, we often jump to conclusions or make assumptions that the other person is misinformed, mentally challenged, or even trying intentionally to deceive. I think that's crucial as we kind of think about how we force our beliefs on others and feel the need to correct others. And, and again, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. What I would suggest is this. If if you're imposing your view as a need to be right, think about that. That is generally going to be wrong and unrighteous dominion. But if you can do this instead, if you can look to yourself and say, there are people in this room who by what was just said in the class, they are going to set up a false assumption. And they're going to set themselves up for a big fall. How can I give the members of this class flexibility rather than seeing it through the narrow way that was just taught to them. And so rather than saying, sorry, brother so-and-so, you're wrong in the way you just taught that, and this is the right way to see it, there are ways to say, hey, I can understand how you see it that way. You mind if I share the way I see it? And then offer an opposing viewpoint, but with the room that people can gravitate towards either one. Also, rather than drawing your line in the sand, show the class that people have flexibility to believe both ways. So, for instance, maybe you don't believe in evolution, and maybe somebody else in the class does. And there might be a tendency to start throwing out quotes from leaders in the past. But rather, the easiest thing to do would be to say there is no doctrine in the church on that subject. And both Brother Jones and myself and each of you are free to believe either way. And, and just keep in mind that you want to be careful in the way you approach things so that you're not hurting somebody else's feelings. You don't want to offend the teacher. You don't want to make another person go home with hurt feelings and to essentially drive a wedge between you, right? You're to reprove betimes with the Holy Ghost so as not to be seen as the enemy. And you're supposed to come back with twice as much love as the reproof that you used so that that person does not esteem you as an enemy. So back to the article. He says, The true doctrine of presiding is a principle of humility, a principle of service. All are commanded to love their neighbors as themselves. When one is called to preside in the church, however, it is a call to serve, to put the interest of the flock ahead of his own. He is expected to emulate the shepherding skills of the good shepherd. These are nothing more than parenting and marriage partner principles at work, outside the home, in the church setting. He again says in Babylon the children serve the parents. In Zion the parents serve the children. In Babylon the mother works in the home so the father can succeed in the world. In Zion, the father works in the world so the mother can succeed in the home. He will put her needs ahead of his own. They will put their children's needs ahead of their own. Such is the presiding principle. I think that's just beautiful. He 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 uh, he uh, continues on. He says, in this true presiding principle, what woman is going to envy the man being called to preside in her home? If a woman resents the husband being called to be the least and the servant of all in the home. It is for one of three reasons. One, the true principle of presiding is misunderstood. Two, the true principle of presiding is not properly practiced. Or three, the woman is an aspiring spirit. If this principle is not understood, it must be perceived this call to preside somehow makes the husband superior to the wife. We have seen this is not correct. They are equals. The man and the woman are full partners. He is in no way superior to her. His call to preside is merely a function of position. He then can, he then finishes up this section. He says, We have had some sad experience in our service in the church, as we have witnessed heavy-handed husbands who constantly keep their wives in an inferior subservient position. One extreme example was a handsome young fellow who demanded that his wife walk behind him whenever they were out in public. She never had access to the checkbook, he kept her on a strict budget, and she retaliated with the only thing she had left. She withheld her body from him to punish him. She could no longer give herself to such a tyrant. As an orphan who joined the church during his teen years, he had simply never seen a husband-wife relationship modeled. And he thought priesthood authority in the home meant he was the only, final, and absolute lawgiver in the home. The story had a happy ending as this young husband was able to see the folly of his ways and amended his views on the presiding principles in the home, but not until after many tears were shed between them. And I think that's a very good story to remind us. I, I, I you know, the only the only thing that kind of caught me off guard was the the third reason, which is the woman is an aspiring spirit. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a woman being an aspiring spirit. I, I, I do think, though, that he's speaking to a specific kind. And, and I'll just let his words speak for him, and, and I'll probably refrain from adding anything, because I feel like any way I tackle that is uh, is going to be offensive to somebody. He, uh, he finishes off kind of towards the end of this. He talks about uh, President Spencer W. Kimball. And it quotes him and says, Now in some places in the world there are men who do not recognize their wives with full righteousness. The man and the wife are equals. One has to be in authority and that is the man. That does not mean that he is superior. Positions are merely assignments of duty, not price tags of personal worth. He then says Satan has always been, this is the, the author of the article, Satan has always been an aspiring spirit. He wants to be above others. He inspires the people of the lie to manufacture reasons to rise higher. He totally understands human nature of fallen man and manipulates the true principle of presiding and tempts men that they may aspire to rise above others. We have seen this all wrong. Righteous people have no desire to rise above one another. The most unnatural act a bishop engages in is sitting in judgment seat as required of his office when he knows himself to be imperfect. He then talks about a basketball analogy. He says a basketball team consists of five important positions. One center, two forwards, and two guards. The point guard position is assigned the duty of calling the plays, and the rest of the players must run the play he calls. The five players are individual people with individual personalities and abilities. If one of them has an aspiring spirit, he will covet to be the point guard. Falsely perceiving this position puts one person above the rest of the team. The person playing the position of point guard may have no such aspirations at all. He knows he calls the place for one reason, that it is the duty of the position to which he is assigned. He might even be a personality who very honestly wishes the configuration of duties were different than it is. But he does his job because that is his responsibility. Another player with an aspiring spirit will always covet the point guard's role, never seeing the truth that the position on the floor has nothing to do with the person playing the game. I thought that's great. says that uh, in regards to positions, Aspiring spirits are sick. They are not right with God or man. They are affected by a distorted perception of truth and selfish ambition, perverting the way they approach life and interact with others. Righteous spirits see things correctly and approach life and their interaction with others with a righteous regard for diversity of spirits with whom they labor. They do not seek to be above each other, and they are happily content to be equals. It says, follow the leader is a child's game. It is also a fundamental principle in the kingdom we must never forget. He uses a, a scripture here, Doctrine and Covenants 28.6. six. says, Oliver Cowdery is chastised in this section, and told by the Lord, thou shalt not command him who is at thy head. Referring to his file leader, Joseph Smith, such is the order of the house of God. Joseph was constantly surrounded by more educated, wealthier, more sophisticated, and more dynamic personalities, but he was chosen to lead. And so I think that's uh, an important note. Let me finish up here with uh, with just a couple more things, and uh, we'll end this this uh, this episode. I know this is a long episode. I hope hope there are things you're picking up on. We're told that uh, we are to be equal in both heavenly and earthly things. That's Doctrine and Covenants 38:24 through 25. I'm sorry, maybe that is Doctrine and Covenants 78:5 through 6. And we are not. And if we are not one, we are not His. DNC 38, 7. These are not contradictory sayings. Once understood and accepted into practice by the saints. They are perfectly harmonious. There will be vertical positions in the kingdom, relatively higher and lower, so there may be order in all things. But people are equals, brothers and sisters, all beloved children of God. This is a grand key in our interpersonal relationships with each other as children of the kingdom. We must cherish our understanding of the difference between people and positions. Again, with people, the interpersonal configuration is horizontal. With positions, the interpersonal configuration is vertical. When we get it wrong and start thinking positions make people more or less valuable, problems arise. These misunderstandings cause leaders to be puffed up and followers to envy. This is all wrong and only diminishes true respect and destroys effective interpersonal relationships. Positions do not, cannot increase or decrease the value of people. I think that's an awesome one. It says confused leaders who believe positions make people superior and inferior to each other are 1. puffed up. 2. two are poor leaders seeking their own, thinking evil, practicing unrighteous dominion. They're confused followers who believe positions make people superior superior and inferior to each other. They're envious. They are poor followers. They're easily provoked or offended. It says poor leaders and poor followers do not make for good interpersonal relations, communication, and effective teamwork within the church. I think that's a great uh, little segment there. He talks about Moroni chapter 7 which talks about charity and how charity never faileth. Chapter 7 also talks about the way to judge is those things that bring us closer to Christ. He talks about charity and that good leaders, righteous leaders, and righteous followers will have charity. He says we need to seek after this gift. He finishes up saying this. He says, Someone in the confused state may believe the stake president is the most important person in the stake because he holds the highest position in the stake. Such a confused person would likely aspire to that position. These self- these selfish aspirations would obviously be unrighteous. If this same confused person were the stake president, if the same person were the stake president, he would be puffed up and probably be exercising unrighteous dominion. This confused person might also be inclined to perceive other people in positions beneath his, such as the primary teacher, as a lowly person because they hold a lower position. After all, he would reason, primary teachers are a dime a dozen in comparison to the one and only stake president, and the ecclesiastical power and prestige of a ward primary teacher pales in comparison to the much broader authority of the stake president, Ironically, the same confused person would be feeling a great envy as he observed other people serving in positions above his own, like the person of a general authority. Aspiring spirits are never content. They are always seeking a higher position. Such a confused person who mixes up persons and positions will forever be struggling with the major spiritual challenges. He will struggle with pride and envy. He will see things as they are not, and therefore judge things as they are not. He will exercise unrighteous dominion and be easily provoked. Becoming Christ-like will never be within his reach as long as he clings to his illusions. He will never come to appreciate that serving as stake president is no more valuable, superior, or of greater worth than serving in the position of primary teacher. He will fail to truly appreciate the primary teacher's contribution, as just as valid and important as the stake president's. The kingdom needs both. If they will both do their work with humility and the spirit of love, the kingdom will be blessed. At the end of the day, if the stake's primary teachers and mothers do not do their jobs, it won't be long before the stake president has no stake to watch over. One of the uh, authors of this paper spoke of a personal experience, that he had the blessing of serving on a high council with a wonderful stake president. And it was no surprise to learn sometime after being released from his position on the high council that his former file leader was now a ward primary teacher. He says the next time he met the new primary teacher, he found himself feeling just as much love and respect for this person as when the primary teacher had served as his stake president. The person was the same noble spirit. Only his position of service to the kingdom had changed. This great man happily served... In either position, for he had the charity to see all people as peers and the wisdom to recognize the importance of all callings regardless of where the positions appear on the vertical organization chart in the outward kingdom. For the enlightened disciple of Christ, every person in the church is a call to serve others with selfless love in a meaningful way. And then he quotes Alma 126, The priest, not esteeming himself above his hearers, for the preacher was no better than the hearer, neither was the teacher any better than the learner. And thus, they were all equal, and they did all labor every man according to his strength. So, using that kind of as the conclusion, maybe we all can be more aware of ways in which we practice unrighteous dominion. Maybe we each can be aware of ways in which we interact with others and we impose our rightness over possible truth that they have. Perhaps we'll think about the ways we interact with our children and our spouse, with members of our ward who serve in positions that are under our stewardship, and in positions that lead over us. May each of us find the balance between being leaders and managers. May each of us be humble in the way that we interact with others. May we give people flexibility. May we allow people to use their moral agency. It is my prayer in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. And may the Lord warm your shores. Amen.